I found another list. I gotta read you this list. And it actually sorta of ties in, sorta of, kinda. And, uh, I don't know, I get these things from time to time, and some of them are just so good, and they just reflect life so well. This is why God made moms. I thought about waiting until Mother's Day, but that's just too long. I couldn't keep it that long. These are answers given by second graders who are asked these questions. (laughs) You can see where this is going, right? Why did God make mothers? She's the only one who knows where the scotch tape is. Two, mostly to clean the house. And three, to help us get out of there when we were getting born. How did God make mothers? God made my, 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 God made my mom just the same like he made me. He just used bigger parts. God makes mothers out of clouds and angel hair and everything nice in the world and one dab of mean. They had to get their starts from men's bones. From there, they mostly used string, I think. Why did God give your mother? Uh, why did God give you your mother and not some other mom? Answer: We're related. Two, God knew she likes me a lot more than other people's moms like me. (laughs) What kind of little girl was your mom? My mom has always been my mom and none of that other stuff. I don't know because I wasn't there, but my guess would be pretty bossy. (laughs) And the third answer, they say she used to be nice. What did mom need to know about dad before she married him? His last name. Why did your mom marry your dad? Because my dad makes the best spaghetti in the world and my mom eats a lot. Two, she got too old to do anything else with him. And three, my grandma says that my mom didn't have her thinking cap on. Let that one sink in for just a minute. What's the difference between moms and dads? Moms work, and, <laughs> moms work at work and work at home and dads just go to work at work. Did you love that one? Two, moms know how to talk to teachers without scaring them. Three, moms have magic. They make you feel better without medicine. I like that one. What does your mom do in your spare time? Mothers don't do spare time. (laughs) To hear her tell it, all she does is pay bills all day long. And what would it take to make your mom perfect? On the inside, she's already perfect. Outside, I think some kind of plastic surgery. And the second answer, diet. You know, her hair. I diet maybe blue. <laughs> you know, why are these funny? Why are we laughing? You know, it's because these answers come from such a radically different point of view. It's a, it's a seven or eight year old point of view. And so they're saying things that we might think, but we would never say. They're saying something that is unvarnished, that is non-politically correct, that is just looking at the world as they see it from this place, you know, three and a half, four feet off the ground. And so there's a kind of a shock to the system. You know, there's an overturning of the way that we process, the way we look at life, the kind of answers that we would give. And these kids aren't playing by those rules. And so it hits us. You know, any joke is kind of the same way. It leads you in one direction, and then all of a sudden it hits you with that punchline that takes you in a completely different direction. It's the surprise, isn't it, in many respects, that makes the joke funny? Yeah. <laughs> She's going to get me back on Father's Day. But that's it. That's what I was thinking about when I was thinking about these things. This is what we're trying to do with Lent. We're trying to come at Lent 
from a radically different point of view. And in case you didn't know, this is the third Sunday of Lent. There's six of them, so we're halfway through now. We're trying to look at Lent from a completely different point of view, to get that shock to the system, to be able to overturn the tables of, of our established thought, our established ways of looking at things, and see what we can come up with that is going to really prepare us for the new life that is Easter. And we talked about this over the last couple of weeks, is that the way Easter has always been portrayed, at least in my lifetime, and for generations, I'm sure, in liturgical churches, is that it was a time of fasting, a time of deprivation, as a penance for sin. Okay, we're supposed to cleanse ourselves of the sin in order to be ready and to be worthy and to be prepared for new life. Originally in the church, it was used as a precursor to baptism, a 40-day period of deprivation. So we're trying to take this notion and turn it around and say, okay, we're going to have a time of some deprivation. We're going to have a time where we're going to lower the noise. We're going to lower the intake. We're going to lower the consumption. But not just as penance for sin. We're going to do it as a means of clearing the decks. We're going to do it as a means of clearing away all the things that would distract us and obscure God's face from us. Because the truth of the matter is we don't have to wait for Easter for God. He's right here. He's as now as he's ever going to be and has always been. We experience time moment by moment, but for God it's one thing, one unity, all here, all now. So what we really need to do is clear away everything that is keeping us from seeing that basic truth of life, that there is no waiting the waiting is over. The kingdom is here. Mark 1.15, what Jesus, his first sermon was all about that. There's no more waiting. If you are ready, if you are prepared, if you're entirely ready to overturn the tables of your life, then something can happen. And what we were trying to do, we started the first, the first Sunday of Lent, was to take the, the scriptural passages that are used liturgically during Holy Week and take them and see how they each teach us another part of this lesson of getting closer and closer to being able to marry our presence to God's presence. And this morning I'd like to take the scripture passage that's used on Fig Monday. Ever heard of Fig Monday? Okay, so each day of Holy Week has a name. It's Palm Sunday, Fig Monday, Holy Tuesday, Spy Wednesday, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday. And so each one has a name that relates to something that's going on in the scripture passages. The scripture passages that are used on Holy Thursday are Jesus, after he enters into Jerusalem, which is Palm Sunday, then he cleanses the temple, overturns all the tables, throws out the moneylenders, makes a big ruckus in there, calls them all the den of thieves. And then he goes outside and he curses the fig tree, which is always a little weird for me. I couldn't figure out why Jesus would curse this poor fig tree, especially since it wasn't even the season for figs. Okay, And then from there, he goes into another confrontation with the Pharisees that we're going to read in a minute, but just kind of setting that table. You know, We're talking about overturning tables. We're talking about allowing ourselves to have a shock to the system that changes everything about the way that we process information the way that we look at life, our attitudes, because without that, no change can take place. Transformation will be blocked for us if we're hanging on to the status quo. So these old habits that we're talking about die really hard. Okay, So they're going to need shocks to the system, which is what 
Jesus is always trying to provide. But life will provide those shocks to the system as well. Marion sent me an article, and I wanted to read a portion of it because it really kind of hit me. And uh, it's about Steve Jobs, you know, the co-founder of Apple. And as most of you probably know, he died, what was it, about seven years ago now. And uh, this is an account of his last few hours. And I just, just kind of relax for a second. Just let me read this to you, and let's see if it takes us anywhere in the neighborhood of where I'm trying to go. In the early light of October 5th, 2011, at his home in Palo Alto, California, Apple co-founder Steve Jobs quietly studied the faces of the loved ones surrounding his bed. He was fading in and out of consciousness. Closest to him was his wife of 20 years, Lorene. She was monitoring the pace and frequency of his breathing. Their three children, Reed, Aaron, and Eve, hung at the perimeter of the room keeping vigil. The intensely private entrepreneurial tech giant who had once declared his goal to change the world was at the end of a long and painful illness. Originally diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in 2004, Jobs had suffered and bravely managed a myriad of health-related complications over the course of seven years. He took three official leaves of absence, including one for a liver transplant in 2009, before resigning as CEO in August of 2011. But as summer turned to fall, it became clear that Steve Jobs was dying. There would be no more treatments or experimental medications. He was homebound, too frail and weak to venture outside. Knowing the curtain was falling, a number of Apple executives from his inner circle began making regular trips to the Jobs residence. Naturally, business was always discussed during these meetings. And according to those present, Steve would light up whenever a new project or company challenge was put forth for debate. But those closest to the Apple guru, speaking on condition of anonymity, would later say that during these final visits, Steve was more interested in talking about religion and the afterlife than software and technology. He was unsettled. He had questions, big questions. Questions such as, what really happens when we die? Where do we go? Or what's it like there? Became popular topics of conversation. Although Jobs spent his early years attending a local Lutheran church with his parents and sister, he had grown frustrated as a teenager with traditional Christianity. Specifically, he struggled with the seeming contradiction of how an all-loving God could allow the suffering and starvation of innocent people, especially children. The standard answers from his pastor and parents no longer satisfied him. He told his biographer, Walter Isaacson, the juice goes out of Christianity when it becomes too based on faith rather than on living like Jesus or seeing the world as Jesus sees it. It's an interesting quote. And so as a young man, Jobs began exploring and embracing the world of Zen Buddhism. He intently studied its tenets. Shortly after dropping out of Reed College in Oregon, Jobs even traveled to India where he considered joining a Zen monastery. He regularly attended uh, irregularly meditated and voraciously read religious texts. He said he wanted to experience spiritual highs, not engage in dry doctrinal debates on Christianity. Returning three years later with a shaved head and wearing traditional Indian garb, he began practicing a modified version of the ancient faith. In the office, Jobs would often wear jeans without shoes. According to Steve, Buddhism seemed to complement his work ethic and worldview. He appreciated its simplicity. 
But now he was at the end of his life. And the specificity, urgency, and poignancy of his questions hinted that Steve Jobs was still searching for what he had never seen or experienced since childhood, peace and assurance. Spiritually speaking, it's impossible to know what goes on inside a man's heart. History is replete with dramatic deathbed conversions. The Roman Emperor Constantine the Great asked to be baptized moments before he died. So did the writer Oscar Wilde. John Wayne struggled from his hospital bed, slipped to his knees, and turned, and turned the hours that were left of his life over to Jesus. According to those present in Palo Alto, there was no such moment or declaration in Steve Jobs' final days. However, his final words, spoken haltingly but clearly, are provocative. Steve's sister, Mona Simpson, revealed at his funeral that after making eye contact with everyone in the room, Jobs turned and gazed beyond them, as if looking at a scene unfolding over their shoulders. Oh, wow, he said. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. What did he see? It's impossible to know. But it's fitting that the man whose life work revolved around the pursuit of rethinking man's approach to the wonder of technology is the same man whose last words were wrapped in the spirit of wonder itself. What did he see? What does it take in life to get us to take that shock to the system? What do we have to experience? What do we have to endure to get to the point that we're willing to allow the shock to penetrate us, to do its work in us? Now, obviously, impending death is a great motivator, right? It moved Jobs back to a spiritual framework. Earlier in life, his distaste for the way he saw Christianity being practiced shocked his system and moved him in a radically different direction. I think the tragedy is that people feel that if they are really going to pursue an authentic spiritual journey, that they have to leave Jesus to do so. I've seen that over and over and over again, especially in young people, you know, turning to the East to find some sort of authenticity, to find an inclusion, to find a way of being able to move in a direction that something deep inside them, a, common, a spiritual common sense, if you will, is moving them. But we've done such an injustice to Jesus here. We haven't been fair to Jesus. We've molded him and remade him in the way that we understand. And then we leave him when he doesn't meet our expectations. The truth is, we don't have to leave Jesus to pursue an authentic spiritual journey. In fact, any really authentic spiritual journey will always lead us back to the voice of the authentic Jesus. It can't help but do that. Even if it doesn't lead us back to Christianity as practiced here and now, you can't say you're having an authentic spiritual journey without understanding the truth of what Jesus is saying, the truth of who he was and how he lived. And so, how are we going to learn from something like this? How can we see that if we are really concerned with truth, if we're really concerned with finding what really is, 
What are we willing to give up for Lent? (laughs) If you want to put it that way. What are we willing to allow a shock to our system to clear away so that whatever is left is really what is true? I had a Jewish friend who talked about and wrote about his personal theology. That was a shock to my system. I didn't think you could have a personal theology, right? Theology belonged to the church. It was the church's province, not mine. I couldn't have I grew up in the one true church. They told you what theology was, and you had to toe the line. I figured as a kid that it was somewhere that God wrote down theology someplace that I didn't know of. The church discovered it, and they were delivering it to me. And I had to just take it as it was spooned out. So to think of a personal theology, to think of something that I could think for myself, even if it moved in a different direction, that was blasphemous to my thinking. And here's this personal theology he's talking about. Now, I'll admit, in Judaism, there's a lot more space for personal beliefs. Judaism doesn't have a hard and fast theology the way Christianity does. It's much looser about the intellectual and the abstract. It's all about practice in Judaism. But even so, this was difficult. Through my years, I've been blessed that I have bumped up against a lot of people, several people, who were radical thinkers, radical believers. They presented a shock to the system to me because they had lived through their own shocks to the system. They had been willing to overturn their tables in their life, in their beliefs, to be able to go someplace different. And they were unafraid enough to go in those directions. You've probably heard me talk about Emery Tang in here before. He was a Franciscan priest that I befriended up at Sarah Retreat when I was practically living up there for a a period in my life. And we had an open convocation where he declared (laughs) that the devil was a metaphor for all the evil that's inside of us. And of course, all my evangelical hackles went up and I had to see him afterwards in his office and I came with my Bible and I was all prepared. And as soon as I started in, all he did was put his big hand in my face and stopped me. And he said, look, all I can do is tell you what I'm convinced of. You go become convinced of what you're convinced of. And even though I thought at that moment that was the hugest cop-out, I realize now it's the only thing that one of us can say to another of us. This is what I'm convinced of. And if I am truly convinced of this because I've walked the path myself, then this theology, whether it comports with church or not, has become my personal conviction. And that conviction can take me through someplace. It can take me through the difficulties that life is inevitably going to hand me and hand you. Steve Jobs realized that the Christianity that he had been practicing as a youth was not sufficient to drive his bus any further. He thought he needed to leave Jesus. Did he come back again? Don't know. Only matters to him. But what about us? Where are we going with all this? This is what we need to think about. I want to read just a little bit from uh, The Fifth Way, my book. And the title is called Making It Personal because it's absolutely essential That whatever theology we do adopt, whatever theology, whatever belief system we say we're going to live by, has become personal. All theologies begin as personal theologies, attempts to express an inexpressible experience of the infinite in a finite life. And any theology only becomes useful once it has become personal. 
Now think about it. Take any religion and roll it back in time, right? What do you end up with? You end up with one person who had such an intense, singular experience of God that it changed them from the inside out. Now, whether for good or for evil, that experience, that personal experience, was what they were trying to express to the people that gathered around and wanted to follow them. It started from that one experience expressed to the group, right? But when you join a religion, what happens? You get the expression first and not the experience. Now, if religion is being done right, the religion and the practice and the belief systems and the community are all going to be funneling you toward that experience of your own that you can have if it's done right. But often it's not. Often religion becomes an end in itself. The practices, the belief system, the theologies become the end in themselves. And they're no longer pointing, they're no longer directing us toward the experience that we must have. And so it all gets back to front. And we're no longer pursuing a personal conviction. We're taking at face value what someone else has said. Theology is not an end in itself. It's a process of training the mind to accept a certain concept about God, to mentally assent to that concept. It's a way of clearing a path to belief. But belief is not an end in itself either. In the New Testament, the Aramaic word for believe is etamen, and for faith, haimanuta. Both of these words contain all the meanings associated with our concepts of belief, faith, and trust, all present simultaneously in each Aramaic word. Whenever Yeshua speaks of believing or having faith, what he's really driving at is trust, confidence, firmness, integrity between thought and action, living and choosing, as if something were already true. Try substituting trust for faith or belief wherever you find those words in the New Testament and see how it deepens the message. In fact, etamen is related by root to the Hebrew word amen, which is also an affirmation, a confidence and trust. Far from being an end in itself, belief is merely the first step in the journey to trust. Belief allows the mind to accept and assent, and when belief deepens, the mind allows the body to take action consistent with the belief. Belief that has become action is called faith. Faith without works is dead, as James wrote. And when faith deepens through repeated experiences of the trustworthiness of God, it becomes trust. The confidence that holds fast, even when the circumstances of life seem to contradict the belief with which we started. Belief deepening to faith is the only means by which we can experience trust. And trust is the only means by which we can transform our lives from a base of fear to a base of love. Because only trust allows us to see beyond our circumstances and take the risk that our fear would normally abort. Once we arrive at trust, the mental stuff just doesn't matter anymore. It was all only vehicle after all. Our personal theology will come out of our personal experience of God, our trust. There's no other way to learn such a thing because such a thing is not transferable between humans. We may find ourselves lined up with someone else's conceptions, but we all must arrive under our own steam. We need to move beyond the carrot and the stick notion that most of us modify our behavior with, reward and punishment. Always keeping the scriptures and the theologies and the traditions of our churches in mind because they've formed the guardrails 
the safe zone within which we can find our personal experience. It's not either or, it's both and. But if we don't move beyond just received learning, secondhand, hearsay, third person, then we never will get the personal conviction that is necessary if we're going to be able to experience God and the freedom that Jesus has for us. We need to move beyond reward and punishment, beyond the institutional, the merely institutional relationship with God and received thought and practice to personal conviction. And from there to trust. That's where we need to get eventually. And all of this feels dangerous, of course. Leaving the security of the institution. Look how dangerous it was for Jesus when he pushed against the authorities of his day. Many of you have experienced how dangerous it is to go against your own church as you were moving out in thought and then trying to express that either in small groups or wherever you did and the pushback that you got. And eventually some of you have experienced the ostracism of the church body when someone is starting to become the black sheep. Jesus is trying to show us what this is like, what it, what it looks like, what it feels like when we start to move in these directions and one of those instances is right here at Matthew 21, starting at verse 23. And to put this in context, this is right after the triumphal entry into Jerusalem where everybody is shouting, you know, Hosanna, 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 you know, Hoshiana, save us, Lord. And of course, the authorities are telling Jesus to shut them up. They can't be saying this. And this is when he says, if they're silent, even the rocks are going to cry out. And from there, he goes into the temple and cleanses the temple. And from there, he goes out and he slaughters the fig tree. And so at Matthew 21, where he is connected now with the chief priests and the elders in the temple, he enters the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to see him while he was teaching, and they said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? What things? Cleansing the temple, riding into the city, and accepting the praise of the people, right? And Jesus said to them, I will also ask you one thing. Which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, this is John the Baptist, his cousin, was from what source? From heaven or from men? You see what he's doing here? He's turning the tables around on them. They think they've got him backed into a corner in front of all the people. But he turns it back on them. You know, this is quintessential Jesus, what he always does. And they began reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he's going to say to us, then why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the people, for they all regard John as a prophet. And answering Jesus, they said, we do not know. <laughs> and he also said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Remember, it's only Monday here, Fig Monday. He's got a lot of work to do. He's not ready to, for the full showdown just yet. But here is Jesus again quintessentially, asking, being asked a direct question but does not give a direct answer. He tells a story instead. Always trying to take people on an experiential circuit, a cycle, so they can experience for themselves, not to have just gotten something handed to them, third person, but to really experience something for themselves so it becomes theirs. But what do you think, he asked them all. A man had two sons, and he came to the first and he said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, The son, I will not. But afterwards he regretted it, and he went. 
The man came to the second son, and he said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he didn't go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they said, the first. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. Do you have any idea what fighting words those are? (laughs) To tell a Pharisee, to tell a scribe that tax collectors and prostitutes rank higher than them? Oh, I mean, this is what Jesus last week is all about, isn't it? I mean, he is just choosing them on. Now, the thing to really see here is this whole chapter, Matthew 21, is one unit of meaning. The context covers the entire chapter. And so we have to see all the incidents in the chapter as being one unit of meaning. When Jesus goes in to cleanse the temple and when he goes out to to curse the fig tree, it's the same story as the two sons. The meaning is getting us is giving to is being given to us in three different ways, three different evocative passages. Hopefully, but we'll start to get this driven down deep into our experience. Because what is Jesus saying? Look at this temple, it's magnificent. It is a symbol of all Israel. It is the center of all religious practice and belief. It is the the, the tabernacle of God's presence. And yet inside It's just a den of thieves. Inside, it's full of corruption and dead men's bones. From the outside, it looks like it should supply everything that Israel needs to be God's people. But inside, it cannot nourish. It cannot preserve. It can't give the people anything they need. Now take that understanding and transplant it over to the tree. Jesus sees the fig tree from far off. It's full of leaves. It's green. It's verdant. And he's hungry. Everything about that tree gives the promise of sustenance, the promise of good fruit. And not only that, the fig tree was a symbol of Israel for centuries. So the people wouldn't have missed that connection, even though we do. But when he gets up close, guess what? There's no fruit. All he's doing is declaring the state of the tree for what it is. It's withered. It has no ability to provide And now you look at the two sons. One says, yes, I will go, and looks like the righteous and the great son, but he's not fulfilling what is is needed, what his father has asked of him. The other one, who for all intents and purposes looks like the lost boy, is the one who finally comes back around. Jesus is trying to teach the, the people and the authorities of his time a really important lesson. You think because you are just following through the facade the practices, that everything is all right, but it's not. You are no longer fulfilling the intent of everything that our spiritual life is supposed to be about. And so, here is the, here is the end sequence. Here is what happens. You know? And Jesus goes in and overturns the tables. He is trying to deliver the shock to the system, to deliver the, 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 the bit that finally gets people to see something else needs to take place. This is where Jesus is going with all this. And he's trying to take us along with him. With him you know, because if we're no longer fulfilling law, if we're no longer fulfilling God's will, then what in the heck are we even doing? 
We've got to overturn the tables in our lives. We need to turn this back and make it personal for us. What are the rituals that we are going through? What is the facade that we are maintaining that at one time looked like life, looked like promise, and now no longer has any way of fulfilling, any way of taking us where we really need to go? We need to turn our tables over. We need to kill some trees, right, in order to be able to get where Jesus is trying to take us. Because like those two sons, it doesn't matter what we say we believe. It matters what we do. But even beyond that, it's not just about what we do, but the intent behind what we do. Because if we're still just doing what we think we're supposed to be doing for reward or to avoid punishment, then we've completely missed the entire point of what Jesus is trying to talk about here. That the change that we are seeking, the transformation of kingdom, can never come from the outside in. It will never be by conformance or compliance that we move into this quality of life that he's talking about. It will always be by transformance from the inside out that we become who our Father is, that we value what our Father values. And the only way that that can happen is if we start to overturn the tables of what we think we already know what we've already been practicing. Be willing to let it all go. Be willing to let it all go so we get to the bottom of that dog pile and see what's there and then see what comes back. It's not all going to stay away, but we need to become entirely ready to let go of these things that we're clinging to so tightly so we can see what really is. How are we going to know? How are we going to know if we're moving in the direction that Jesus is beckoning? How are we going to know if our theology is becoming personal, if our conviction is becoming deeper, if we have actually began to touch kingdom as Jesus understands it? How are we going to know these things? Ironically, you're going to know that your conviction is deep and deepening when you're no longer offended by someone else's convictions which means you're no longer threatened by someone else's convictions. Look at what offends you. Look at what makes your blood boil. Look at what makes you want to run, grab your Bible, and start to debate and defend. Those are the things that are pointing toward convictions that are only skin deep. Those are the ones that still make us run. Those are the ones that keep the tail wagging the dog. When our convictions become deeper, when this becomes personal... We can just love people wherever they are. They don't threaten us anymore because we understand the truth of how we are loved. We understand who this Father is that we're serving. And everything begins to change. And our theology becomes personal and becomes deep only when we have been willing to overturn the tables of the status quo in our own lives. And in order to do that, we've got to give ourselves permission Is it okay for us to rethink what we've always been taught? Is it okay for us to think outside the interpretation of this book or this practice that has always been handed to us? We have to take that permission first in order to take these first steps. Jesus did. That's what he did. He was trained as a Jew. He was a good Jew. He kept the written law. But the oral tradition, 
and the traditions of the Pharisees, he was poking at those all the time because he saw how those were subverting the intent of the written law. He was always pushing past. He was always pushing the envelope. He was always putting mud in your eye because he wanted people to be able to see, as he had seen, how much lay on the other side of an overturned table. One last little bit. The philosopher, Chinese philosopher Chuang Tzu, he famously wrote that the purpose of a fish trap is to catch fish. And once the fish is caught, the trap is forgotten. And the purpose of a rabbit snare is to catch a rabbit. And once the rabbit is caught, the trap is forgotten. And the purpose of words is to convey an idea. And once the idea is grasped, then the words are forgotten. And he says, show me the man who has forgotten words. He's the one I want to talk to. (laughs) Don't you love that? The purpose of theology is to catch God, to get us to the point of falling back into his embrace and experiencing who he really is and not who we might imagine him to be. And once God is caught, the theology can be forgotten. Where can I find a person who has forgotten theology? How set is your mind? How certain are you of your theology and your belief and your religion and your practice? Is your certainty just another shield against the fear of really falling into God's embrace because you don't really know what that will mean? Like Steve Jobs on that bed, what's next? When we have experienced enough of God here and now in these moments, then... Nothing offends us. And we can live through even difficulties with a certainty and a poise and a gravitas that others will want to know more about what it is that animates us. Think about how set your mind is. Think about what offends you. Deal with the fact that you've got some tables to overturn and go ahead and break it if it's breakable. Break it now. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you in this Lenten season that we're spending time thinking more deeply about these things. Help us in this, I know it's an arbitrary time, but these next few weeks before Easter, to use them as a focus, use them as a motivation to keep turning over rocks and tables and whatever else we need to do to get as clear and clean as we can as we approach new life. Help us to be relentless in our desire to know you more and know you better and know you more fully in every moment. And thank you for the love and the sustenance and all the tools that you give us every moment of every day. Thank you for loving us, never leaving or forsaking us, and never letting us forget that we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.